The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So much of the population is employed in agriculture. So much of that has been destroyed. They won't have farms or land to go back to and are going to look to migrate and they're going to move to cities internally almost certainly at first and so that's going to put pressure on on places that don't necessarily have the infrastructure or the capacity to absorb those migrants Um, and here you know talking to someone who knows more about Pakistan would be really interesting about different ethnic groups and where they might move and how that might create pressures in different parts of the country but this is something that you know the World Bank released a report Uh, years ago now called Groundswell, which talked about the number of internal migrants around the globe being Mm -hmm. in the millions Mm -hmm. by 2050. So I think looking at what happens in Pakistan, there could be a lot to learn, frankly, from that and, and apply lessons elsewhere. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast for September 12th, 2022. Pakistan is experiencing one of the largest natural disasters in modern history, The massive floods there, combined with glacier melt, have led to one-third of the country being submerged underwater, with more than one million people displaced and tens of billions of dollars in damage. I sat down with Aaron Sikorsky, the director for the Center for Climate and Security, who has over a decade of experience previously in the U.S. intelligence community looking at issues like climate and security. We talked about the situation in Pakistan, its impact on the Pakistani military and security services, how the Pakistani military is being employed to help with flood relief, the impact on regional security, and the ultimate impact on U.S. national security and how we address climate change. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 12th, Pakistan's flood disaster and national security. Aaron, let's start off by setting the stage with what is happening in Pakistan and how, how we got to where we are now with this catastrophe going on there? Sure. Well, what's happening in Pakistan right now is one third of the country is underwater. And that's due to a combination of extreme weather, right, extreme precipitation, as well as uh, melting of glaciers, right, in the river basins, where the rivers begin. Mm -hmm. And so those two things together combine to cause an extreme flooding event that likes of which Pakistan has never seen before. Frankly, the world has, has never seen before. Pakistan's had floods in the past, but this one has displaced millions of people across the country. 
the government is struggling to reach many of them. Uh, they don't have places to live. They don't have food. And this comes on top of, you know, already high inflation in the country, a food security crisis in the country. So mm -hmm. it's just really a, a humanitarian crisis of epic proportions. Let's break down some of those elements you started with. So heavy rains and glacier melt. This is, you know, September. Glacier melt happens every year at this time. And there's rains every year, roughly this time. But both of those are slightly different. To what extent can we attribute those differences to climate change? Sure. So I'll preface this by saying I'm not a climate scientist. There are great climate scientists who are working right now on those attribution studies. They do these quick attribution studies to determine how much climate change plays a role in crises like this. Mm -hmm. But I think you can absolutely say as the world warms, right, that causes more precipitation. We know that as a fact. When the world warms, we know that ice in glaciers melts more quickly <laughs> and more extremely than in the past. And so this kind of event is exactly the kind of thing that uh, climate scientists have been warning about, the UN, governments around the world have been warning about for years. So yeah, this isn't completely new uh, to Pakistan to have these kind of events, but it it is certainly driven in part by climate change, also driven, and we can talk about this more, by poor governance decisions, right, and ecological degradation and things that make the country more vulnerable to this kind of shock. Let's Let's talk about each of those in turn. So the first part is that this was maybe not point predicted, that it would be, you know, the first half of September of 2022, this exact event would happen. But the fact that Pakistan itself was primed for this was predicted. The national intelligence estimate that was had public release did talk about Pakistan being one of the most vulnerable countries for something like this kind of event, right? Yep, exactly. So that isn't a surprise, right? There are indices, one out of Notre Dame, that ranks countries on their ability to adapt and prepare for climate change. You know, Pakistan did not rank well on, on that list. Uh, you mentioned the NIE. It's part of the world where warming is happening at a more rapid pace, and it, the country is very vulnerable. Yeah. Okay. Then the second part, which is the the human element, not the just, well, I guess the climate is a human element, but the human governance element. The Pakistani government, in a sense, not preparing for this, number one, and then not doing what needed to be done, number two, to respond to it, right? Are both true? Both are true. I think, to be fair, the second part about needing to respond, it would be hard for almost any government, frankly, to respond to the scale of crisis that mm -hmm. they're facing in the country. But yeah, I mean, there's been political instability in Pakistan for many years. I was reading this morning, I don't think any prime minister has ever served out a full term in Pakistan in its 75-year history. And there have been decisions made about where to build buildings, for example, on the banks of rivers. There's been decisions made around deforestation and other ecological uh, development that has made the impact of these floods even worse than expected. And as you see with the response in the country, it's really the military that's been leading the response thus far. They're the ones that are putting the most effort and boots on the ground to to respond. And it's, it's super challenging. I also want to say here, though, when you look at who's responsible for emitting the most greenhouse gases, it, of course, is not Pakistan. Yeah. It is countries like the West in the United States and others. And so there is that dynamic as well that we're all in this together, right? That no country alone can manage the climate crisis. And though the Pakistani government 
deserves a lot of, I think, hard criticism for not being well prepared and, and making poor governance decisions. The rest of the world deserves some of that criticism as well. I regret that I can't remember where I saw this, but I did see somewhere recently that less than 1% of the world's emissions are from Pakistan. And yet a third of this country, not a small country either, we're, we're, we're talking about a large country, is, is literally underwater because of this event. So the disparity is, is dramatic, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that countries like Pakistan and other developing nations have been talking about for a long time and I imagine is going to be on the the table at the next uh, Conference of Parties meetings about mm-hmm. climate change happening in Cairo later in, in November, that these countries are demanding that uh, countries like the United States, countries in Europe help them manage these risks because those, you know, the Western countries are the ones that are responsible. I think it's important for the United States and others to to do that, not only because it's their responsibility, but also because it serves our own national security and our own interests. What's happening in Pakistan right now, what's going to happen over the next six months to a year poses real security risks to the U.S. And so it's it's in our interests to help them be better prepared for these types of risks. I do want to return to that. That's a that's a huge concern going forward and one that I, f- I feel hasn't been getting nearly as much attention as the reports of the catastrophe itself. But you, you dropped something in there that I, I don't want to lose. Before the this Pakistan crisis developed, you had already been tracking, and I see it on Twitter, but I suspect – you, you know, you've got things pinned on your wall with strings between them, <laughs> like the meme. All of the cases in which the duties of military and security services were, were being directed to climate change induced or magnified events and the ways in which these climate disasters from, from wildfires to floods were basically affecting military service worldwide, taking them away from the front in a case like Russia, Ukraine, perhaps, but, but essentially being diverted to help with these things. Talk through some of those examples uh, before Pakistan, the range of countries and the range of things that you have seen military and security services being pulled in in ways that were not normal even 5, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned the the Twitter thread I've been keeping this summer. I think I'm up to 45 now examples of militaries around the world being pulled in to help fight wildfires in Europe. That was something we saw many places across the continent this summer to deliver water in Switzerland to uh, agriculture, to, to livestock stuck on the mountains, to seed clouds in Mexico. The Air Force there was sent up to try and seed clouds to cause rain to stop a drought to respond to floods in Uganda, in Kentucky, here in the United States, um, now in in Pakistan, also in China. Um, So really, any climate disaster you can think of or any extreme weather event that's been fueled by climate that has happened this summer, in many cases, military forces have been called out to help manage and respond to those threats. So in Pakistan, you've got two elements of this. One is the direct risk of the flooding to the military and security infrastructure, both the physical infrastructure of it all, but also just the readiness of these forces. So there's that. And and then there's the, the deployment of these forces to work on it and the opportunity costs of that. So talk about the first. Have, have you seen a lot of direct evidence of military facilities? I mean, if a third of the country is underwater, there have to be some military facilities and security buildings that are literally unusable 
which inhibit the abilities of the Pakistani government to address no kidding security concerns in the country. Yeah, I would imagine so. I'll be honest, I haven't seen uh, reporting on that right now because I think, frankly, so much of the attention is on on the humanitarian dimension. But I think to all of the things that the Pakistani military does and is involved in with, you know, countries in the region, and clearly this is affecting their ability to to manage those things for better or for worse. And yeah, you mentioned how big a third of the country is. It's it's the size of the UK. It's the size of England. So clearly there are there are military facilities mm-hmm. that are affected. And we've seen that around again around the world uh, earlier this this summer here in the US, as well as in in Europe and elsewhere. So then the humanitarian side, some countries are better equipped, I would say, whether it's due to civil society relations, whether it's due to government responsiveness. Some countries are better equipped to use the military to help with disaster recovery. And I don't know much about Pakistan, but I would not have put them at the top of that list. Now, I don't know why. I think maybe it's because I just don't have the experience in the country of of seeing the military doing the kinds of things that we've seen the National Guard deploy to a thousand times in the United States. But you said you are seeing that, that we are seeing deployments to help with the pure humanitarian recovery at this point. Yep. They are uh, building refugee facilities for folks who have been displaced from their homes. They are conducting rescue missions. They are involved in fundraising <laughs> efforts to oh. direct money to communities within the country. I mean, you know, I am as we started out by this conversation, I'm not a, a deep Pakistan expert, but they have a long history of the military being very involved in, in the leadership of the country. Mm-hmm. And they're really one of the few institutions, I think, that has the budgetary capacity, really, right, and the physical infrastructure to to step up in a lot of places. That can create some problems, too, particularly when you look at relationships between civilians in the military, right. different groups, ethnic groups within the country. It can be problematic to have the military be leading and be the only response. But on the other hand, my understanding looking at the situation is they're the best positioned of any institution to to really step up. Sure, sure. If a significant portion of the what I will just call overall the security services, so uh, military and other elements of from law enforcement all the way up to special forces, if a significant portion of them are devoted towards flood relief right now, that in theory diminishes security, for example, along the border with India. And if we were in one of those times when Pakistan and India were shooting at each other across the border and on the verge of exploding into a larger conflict, as we've seen periodically over the last several decades, you could you could almost see how this could go south really fast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the Center for Climate and Security has done a bunch of research papers in the past few years looking at the nexus of, of nuclear armed states and climate risks and looked a lot at India and Pakistan and, and the relationship there and the shared river basins and the risks that when you have crises like this that put a lot of strain on a government, right, put a lot of strain on a society that – Countries that they have challenging relationships with might try to take advantage of that or it mm-hmm. might there's some distrust between them and this could spark some other kind of 
conflict or or challenge. Uh, so that's that's a real risk here that I think we need to watch. I have also seen some indications that there have been overtures between India and Pakistan uh, in the wake of the crisis, which I think is a potential bright spot that a crisis like this could also lead to to better relations. Uh, you know, we're trained as former intelligence analysts to always look for the, the negative, but there's potential positives there as well. I remember that uh, Bob Gates famously said that when intelligence analysts see flowers, they immediately ask, where's the funeral? Because we are <laughs> so inclined to look for how things could go bad. It's a warning function. That's part of the duty. But you're right. There's also humanity here. And there are some signs from Indian civil society and government of reaching out to Pakistan and saying, you know, we, we feel for you, partially because they realize they are in a similar, not identical, but a similar vulnerable position to some uh, effects of climate change. So you're right. Maybe instead of taking advantage of the security situation, maybe we're actually seeing a sign of, dare I say, hope that people can, quote, rise above it in a case like this to try to help each other out. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we'll still look for the dark side because yeah. that's, that's what we do as well. We've talked a little bit about the the direct link between military personnel and critical infrastructure. And we've talked a little bit about the duties of the military being redirected to this. But another area that you've looked at extensively in the overlap between climate and security is how climate change reshapes global security issues overall. And I'm wondering if you can already tell from what's happened in Pakistan and how just huge this issue is. Are, are you seeing a change in any rhetoric, in any preparation for meetings coming up where people are saying, we were all warning that there might be a wake-up call. This is our wake-up call. Now we need to do X. Is that happening already? I think you're seeing some of it particularly, as I mentioned before, around the conversation about what do the countries that have emitted the most greenhouse gas owe to those that are feeling the effects but haven't actually done the emitting. And I think mm. that example of Pakistan will be held up. I mean, the, the next conference of parties, COP27, is being held in Egypt. Mm -hmm. It's considered by many of the African COP, right? And so African yeah. countries who are also on the bearing the brunt of a lot of these climate impacts are, are going to, I think, use the Pakistan case to show why these effects are so devastating and, and that, that countries owe them that who, who have done the emitting and make that case on the climate finance side. I also think, I mean, the the other thing you're seeing shaping the global debate is around the food security issue, which was already high on the list of concerns given the Russian invasion of Ukraine, mm -hmm. the stopping of shipments there, the droughts in sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East, right, conflict places. And now you add another, I mean, 40 percent of Pakistan's population works in agriculture. And it's been completely devastated by these floods, not only the crops that were already growing, but uh, the, they can't plant the new winter wheat crop. I think tomatoes have gone up in price by like 40 to 60 percent or something like that in the past few days. So food mm. prices are just shooting up. So I, this is all to say, I think another area where you're seeing the discourse globally change is a bit on the food security piece and just mm -hmm. how incredibly urgent that crisis is and will just get more and more urgent as these these things happen. Right. On Lawfare recently, uh, Mark Nevitt at the uh, Emory School of Law wrote about what, what he describes as the three legs of the climate stool, uh, mitigation, adaptation, and most recently, loss and damage. 
Mitigation, of course, seeks to actually curb greenhouse gas emissions, and adaptation seeks to take proactive measures to protect communities from climate change. Loss and damage seeks to help people after they experience climate-related impacts. His, his analysis was that all three legs are wobbly now, but that the loss and damage side is particularly concerning and that Pakistan is, is going to be a case study for how we really need to rethink this. What are your thoughts on this, putting it into that, that broad construct of what we learn not about overall security changes, but what we're learning about just the very way we frame climate change-related catastrophes like this? Yeah, I I read that article. I really appreciate Mark's work on this topic. I think the the loss and damage question and even that phrasing has always been a sticky wicket, right? Because, you know, we're a bunch of lawyers here in the United States. Nobody wants to be held legally responsible for something. And and so that term has been problematic. But the concept, of course, is is he's completely right, is that helping countries rebuild after climate disasters. And I I would argue that's not separate from adaptation because this isn't a one-off for Pakistan, right? Like this isn't the only time they're going to face such a crisis. Mm -hmm. And so building back better, if you will, if I can borrow from the administration, (laughs) is is important. And and as I said earlier, it's not just that the United States should do it because it's the right thing to do, because it's better for us to do that, better for our security. And and I think you need to have a message like that to resonate with policymakers, with Congress, with the American people, right, that that helping countries in the wake of these disasters to to rebuild in a way that makes them stronger is is really important. And I think that conversation, like I said, is going to be a key piece of the next COP and, and something that will be really pushed forward as, as the next thing to really focus on. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains 
more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I can imagine that a number of other countries around the world are, are looking at this very carefully, especially the loss and damage side, right? Because if you go back to the 2015 Paris Agreement, there, there was discussion of loss and damage and the identification of areas of possible cooperation. The, the Glasgow Climate Pact fell short a little bit on that, but since that time, a lot of the countries that are most vulnerable in the world, I'm thinking here largely but not exclusively of the island nations that are at existential risk from rising waters or severe storms, they've got to be looking at this and saying, if there isn't a change in the way we think about, for lack of a better term, climate reparations, we're done for, right? This, this is Pakistan, which is big enough that they can take, and I don't want to make light of it, but they can take a $10 billion plus hit and they can take 1 million people displaced and well over a thousand deaths, I'm sure. And it may 
be dramatically more than that in the long run. Uh, whereas some of these countries say, if we experience something like that, our country is literally gone. Are they right to be worried that the framework won't adapt fast enough to help them if a crisis comes? I think they are. I mean, I think what we see with international institutions and frameworks like this is they take time and we don't have a lot of time when it comes to some of these risks. I think that there are tons of questions that the international community needs to answer about what we owe these island nations. How do we build new pathways to citizenship for climate migrants who are Mm -hmm. completely displaced from their country? All of these things need to be figured out, not only for those island nations, that's where it's most timely and critical, but that will happen other places too. Even if the country doesn't disappear underwater, parts of countries will become unlivable, right? People will need to move because temperatures are so high or flooding happens now so so much more frequently. And, and grappling with those questions now um, makes it much easier than trying to deal with it in the heat of the moment, right, when mm-hmm. the crisis is actually happening. And... I think the push we're seeing from the island nations, from other uh, developing countries is is really important. And, you know, it, it's going to the U.S. and others are going to struggle to provide the right answers there. But I think from my perspective as a security professional and, and as a security organization, our role in that conversation is saying that, look, there are co-benefits to, to doing this, right, to figuring these questions out, to providing funds to these countries so they can adapt and they can prepare mm-hmm. It makes us safer here at home as well. Yeah, let's talk about that, that investment not uh, solely on humanitarian grounds, but because helping to address the situation in Pakistan and helping to prepare for similar situations later is a core national security concern, right? So let's talk through that because there's several ways that, that, that you could argue the logic of that, that this kind of thing is an actual, no kidding, hardcore national security concern. What are your first thoughts? You're trying to explain to somebody why what is obviously a tragedy, people don't like seeing this kind of suffering. But what's your best argument for why people need to see what's happening in Pakistan as affecting U.S. national security interests? Sure. Well, the first thing I would do is point to what happened after the 2010 floods in Pakistan, which were also quite, quite terrible, but not as bad as these. And as the government there failed to respond in many parts of the countries, there were plenty of extremist groups that were more than happy to step up and provide aid and use the uh, tragedy as an opportunity to try and grow their networks. You saw both the Pakistani Taliban mm-hmm. providing aid. You saw groups like Lakshari Taiba providing aid. And the Pakistani Taliban went so far as to push for no Western uh, aid at all and, and attacked uh, foreign aid groups that were trying to help. And so I would argue strength, we're able to strengthen their hand, right, uh, as groups that, that we in the United States consider, consider a real threat. And I expect we'll see similar dynamics around, around this flood. So it provides an opportunity for bad actors, right, right. To, to grow in, in strength and power. Also, as we talked about a little bit before, the the nuclear status of Pakistan and the risk of nuclear facilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, we have not seen anything with this flood at this point to affect those facilities, but they are spread out across the country. And as the government is distracted or focused on trying to respond and strained and pulled in many different directions, I worry a lot about security there as well. I worry about not so much in in 
Pakistan, but in the region, Pakistan, India, China, as you mm-hmm. were mentioning, the risk of tensions among those countries, right? And and conflict there, which plays a direct role in, in U.S. national security as well. So for all of those reasons, I think shoring up stability in Pakistan, shoring up governance in Pakistan so that they can manage these threats is is in our interests. I'd like to to think through each of those out loud a little bit just to make sure I, I'm mm-hmm. grasping it fully because I I intuitively go to the first one with you, which is you have societal disruption, you have people in need, a lot of desperation, uh, the security services affected by it, so actually weakened by it, so the ability to take on counterinsurgency or, or counterterrorism operations is reduced at the same time that a lot of those personnel are doing, you know, building tents and, and feeding people. But you also have this, in a sense, a greater resonance for a, an extremist message saying, this government has been so flawed for so long, you know, we, we need to take action. You, we can do better with, with us. So I, I, I get that. My, my intuition gets me to how a crisis like this can be a national security threat because worse actors take over the Pakistan government than we've had before. So I I check that box. The nukes, I'm not so sure about. I I think physically, yeah, you imagine floodwaters taking over a facility that uh, is involved in the command and control of nuclear weapons. That's a bad thing. But is it more derivative of the first that we're worried that extremist elements would take control of the Pakistani government and therefore control the nukes? Or is it more that there's literally like some nuclear weapons or nuclear related materials that get released from some building that floods, which is the real concern? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think a lot of the nuclear energy facilities within Pakistan have Mm. been built by China. And we don't have good insight into the security procedures or how the safety procedures in those facilities. And as we've seen with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, with nuclear facilities there, there are real risks when right. you have, have conflict erupting around those types of facilities. And and so the the risk of a of a disaster of some kind that then puts more Pakistanis at risk, puts the region at risk, right, due due to something like that, I think is real. I, I think my my bigger concern, and this might be hard to articulate as concretely as, say, the, the terrorism concern, but is just the the systemic pressures on states in these types of crisis. When you have an incredible, you know, climate disaster or weather disaster that you haven't seen before, you don't have the capacity to manage it, but you have something like nuclear weapons, you have you know, a very tense relationship with your neighboring country, which also has nuclear weapons. You have territory that you've been fighting over yeah. and uh, for, for many years. It just adds a lot of extra strain and pressure to a mix that is already pretty combustible. And so my my worry is that, and again, as we were talking, this isn't going to be the last of these that, that Pakistan has to deal with, and this won't be over next month. This is something mm-hmm. that will go on for years in terms of the response. And so what tools does a country or does the international system have to manage when you have these kind of complex intersecting crises? And I don't think we we do, frankly. And I just it just makes the whole neighborhood more dangerous. Right. So that does play into the more purely geopolitical because the at least the glacier part of this equation, you're talking you're getting very close to the region where China, India, and Pakistan have some various border concerns, and there have been actual conflicts in years past. When the ground underneath you, or 
more accurately, the glacier on the ground underneath you is is literally moving and moving fast, that opens up perhaps perceived opportunities. And I'm thinking here more in terms of how China and India have have played off each other. Absolutely. But, but some of the same dynamics will play out with the glaciers along the Chinese-Indian border. That, to me, speaks to that larger U.S. national security concern is when you have the two most populous countries in the world, China and India, who might fight over a new piece of land because of some changed landscape, that is inherently a U.S. national security concern. So this this Pakistan development may not itself be, depending on where the, the melt actually is, but it really points to the fact that this is something that maybe should be put up a few points higher on the concern scale for senior U.S. policymakers. Yeah, absolutely. And and to be fair to, to the current policy team, I think that is it is pretty high high up there, and they've they've prioritized it. But yeah, the the China India border worries me a lot. As the glaciers melt there, it makes it actually easier along the the mm-hmm. line of control to yeah. to fight one another, right? Provide some opportunities there. And you have high levels of mistrust. You have a lot of Chinese dam building that goes on mm-hmm. on the rivers and in the upper parts of the rivers, which it would be all too easy for India to ascribe some kind of disaster that happens in its country to bad behavior by China, even right. though maybe it was as a, a climate or extreme weather event. Hmm. So you have, you know, that exacerbating the tensions there. Uh, and when you don't have, you know, good data sharing between the countries, when you don't have a good way of of building trust, uh, it just makes makes the problems more more severe. So yeah, that's another area I worry about a lot. And I worry about just the the Chinese looking to take advantage. And yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the, uh, the longer future. And I mean, not weeks or months out when we're dealing with the direct effects of the this historic flooding and, and then the consequences of it on a humanitarian level, but the, the recovery of society, because I think we're still underestimating just how bad it's going to be and how much of of Pakistan needs to be rebuilt because some of the most heavily flooded areas are some of the most populated areas in in the country. And that infrastructure is gone. And the, the, um, the amount of international aid that will be required is orders of magnitude greater than what's being pledged already. That is a security concern in the context we've talked about in terms of perhaps extremist groups trying to take advantage politically. But what does it actually mean in terms of potential, this thing we've talked about for years coming, which are the climate migration issues, right? Is, is this almost an inflection point for, okay, people are going to be moving, there's going to be dramatic population shifts. And some of the urban areas that were not as heavily affected by the flooding are suddenly going to have surging populations that themselves create new threats. Yeah, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. As as we were saying, you know, so much of the population is employed in agriculture. So much of that has been destroyed. They won't have farms or land to go back to, and are going to look to migrate, and they're going to move to cities internally, almost certainly at first. And so that's going to put pressure on on places that don't necessarily have the infrastructure or the capacity to absorb those migrants, um, and. Here, you know, talking to someone who knows more about Pakistan would be really interesting about different ethnic groups and where they might move and how that might create pressures in different parts of the country. But this is something that, you know, the World Bank released a report 
uh, years ago now called Groundswell, which talked about the number of internal migrants around the globe being mm-hmm. in the millions mm-hmm. by 2050. So I think looking at what happens in Pakistan, there could be a lot to learn, frankly, from that and and apply lessons elsewhere. Um, because I do think making those decisions, too, about do you try and rebuild communities that have been decimated or do you encourage people to move somewhere else? How do you make those decisions? Who makes those decisions? I mean, there's a whole bunch of questions here. And then those additional pressures, as you mentioned, in in urban areas can create other potential security risks. I feel like we had almost a, a, almost a dry run of this. And dry is the wrong word because it also involves flooding. But back with the Indian Ocean uh, earthquake and tsunami mm, in mm-hmm. in Western Indonesia and Sumatra, that caused such devastation there along the west coast of Sumatra. But then, of course, in so many neighboring countries around the Indian Ocean, that was a case where there was the immediate damage and there were disruptions to local governance. But the, really, some of the some of the most interesting effects were long term, and the fact that I think there's still some places that that have not returned to normal many many years later. This is a different event. It's a different scale of an event. Um, it's affecting a, a larger population in terms of a smaller area than the wide dispersion of the, the Indian Ocean tsunami. But I feel like we didn't really learn some lessons from that. Yes, tsunami warning improved. Got it. That, that's great. But in terms of how to recover from a disaster like this and, and move quickly, how confident are you that international aid and other elements can get in there and prevent this from becoming not just a flood threat, but from becoming a massive disease threat and all the other things that often come after such disasters. Yeah, I mean, I am I am really worried about that in part because there are so many competing <laughs> crises around the world right now for the international community's time. Yeah. I mean, the amount of money and support that's been going to Ukraine, and, and rightly so, mm-hmm. but then you have uh, crises elsewhere that aren't getting much attention at all, and, and it's really hard, especially, I think, for the international donor community to keep their eye on the ball long term with some of these crises, right? So I think that will be a challenge. Um, I do worry about the, the health effects quite a bit. As you mentioned, we're already seeing increased reports of waterborne diseases. You've got something like 650,000 pregnant women in areas that have been flooded. Wow. And so how are they going to safely give birth? You know, there's, there's so many overlapping and cascading questions here. And when I think about U.S. security interests or planning, I mean, I hope that at the same time we've got teams at USAID, I saw Samantha Powers in in Pakistan today, you know, dealing Mm -hmm. with that like immediate response, that there are also teams like playing out and thinking through some of these longer term consequences or potential pathways of how this goes and thinking through, okay, what do we need to do today to make sure we move that on a pathway that is the one we want or, or perhaps less dangerous. Because I think, as you said, these questions, it, it, and, and there are lessons to be learned from previous crises. There are lessons to be learned from the 2010 floods in Pakistan. And they did do mm-hmm. things to improve. But again, this this was so much more impactful. You know, bridges that were rebuilt after 2010 to be higher and not wash out, washed out in, in, mm-hmm. in this flood. It's it's a real challenge. I hate to. I feel like I'm sounding like a downer. Like there's nothing you can do about it. But but it's it the scale and scope. I think just really needs to grab people by the lapels and and shake up how we approach this because it's this isn't a one off. 
you uh, have a window into a, a community that that I don't as much, which is the the universe of people who are either climate scientists or, or people heavily concerned about it that do care about these security questions that you study. What what has been their reaction to this? Because it would seem to me that some people could almost do the I told you so attitude, which is we, we told you something like this was coming, and yet many of you seem unprepared, or could be people saying, this is opportunity. This is a chance for us to say this is bad, and, and it's going to kill so many people that we can't save right now. But we can save people in the future if we just learn some lessons from this. What What is the mood that's prevailing among the people who take climate change issues very seriously and are, and are looking for things to do better in the future? Sure. I think it's much more the the latter. I mean, you always have a few of the I told you so people, but they're not. that's not helpful, right, in this moment. I think there are conversations about how do we approach the response to this in a, you know, truly interdisciplinary way that that leverages multiple tools of of response and governance. I saw today again with USAID is working with the US military to build an air bridge for logistical support to the humanitarian response, which I think is a good partnership, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um and a, and a way of responding that that will be critical. I think these questions about resilience that we were talking about earlier and and how do we think about rebuilding and responding are are questions that are occupying a lot of people's minds and and what is the responsibility for uh, the West to respond. I think you'll and I think it will shake things up in in meetings to come because there is something so tangible to point to of the importance of of investment and adaptation funds, investment in in resilience and, and preparation. And I, I think what's so interesting is so much of it comes down not to fancy technical adaptation innovations mm-hmm. or the best flood walls in the world or, or anything necessarily tangible. I mean, those things are important, but it really comes down to governance and trust. And I saw reports in the Washington Post that um, – you know, there were flood warnings given in certain provinces saying, hey, you got to you got to move. There's going to be floods. And, mm-hmm. and people didn't listen because they didn't trust the government, you know, right. and and you saw that in Germany with the floods last summer as well. And so that's a problem everywhere. And, and those kind of challenges aren't about climate science and they aren't about technical innovation. They're about building better governance. And I think that lesson is 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 I hear that from policymakers. I hear that from practitioners. Um, how do we do this better to manage these risks? And so that that I have hope in terms of, of folks' action, but it is it, it is overwhelming too the scale. So for for listeners who are wondering what to do about all of this, because it, it does seem like one of those things that's you know too big to affect at the tactical level. You know, UNICEF, the Pakistan Red Crescent Society, the International Medical Corps; these are all groups that are doing work to affect the immediate tragedy. But in terms of becoming better informed about these climate issues and how they affect security, um, I will point people to your group, but I'll ask you to describe that a bit. But also talk about what else people can and should be doing to be more involved in this area, regardless of what their main area of focus and interest is. This is an issue that increasingly the Pakistan floods are showing us will affect us all in one way or another. So what else can people be doing outside of immediate relief efforts to help prepare themselves and others for this kind of thing. 
Sure. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned our work, the Center for Climate and Security. If people are mm -hmm. interested, we've got lots of stuff you can read and listen to and, and online on the topic. I think, as you said, it's going to affect everyone. So learn about what's going to happen in your own backyard. Mm -hmm. And there was a new report released today by um, Climate Central, which does a, has a great tool for yeah. envisioning sea level rise. Mm -hmm. um, and you can look at that and see if you live on a coast in the U.S., how that's going to affect your community or something you care about. And, and talk to policymakers, talk to your legislators about this. I think that mm -hmm. is, is, is critical as well um, and how it's going to affect you in your own backyard and, and what you expect from them going forward um, to, to deal with this. And there was a there's a I forget who it was. There was a great climate reporter who said something mm -hmm. last year saying, look, I think every reporter is a climate reporter because climate change is going to affect everything that people report on. And I think it's similar in the national security community. If you work in national security, you deal with climate change. I don't yeah. care what region you work on. I don't care what topic you work on. Climate change is going to affect that somehow. And so it's incumbent upon you to learn about how that might be. And you'll do your job better if you figure out um, how to bring that climate lens into your work. That is a great place to end this conversation, but I have a sad feeling it won't be the last on a similar topic. Erin, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Remember to get ad-free versions of this and some of our other podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. Look for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, The Aftermath, live from Ukraine. Also check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Howell. Your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.